everyone, I'm Tyler Weingarner, and welcome to the latest episode of Meet the Maker. Uh, my name is Tyler, I am the video producer here with Make Magazine, and today we are joined by Hal Rucker. Uh, Hal Rucker is a designer and inventor. Um, some of his most famous work is, uh, or his most visible work is uh, building combat robots. That's something he's been doing for quite a bit of time. But how you do quite a little, quite a bit more than that. Um, how do you describe what you do? Well, my background is pretty eclectic. I guess I'm old enough that I've had time to try a lot of different things. Um, I think it might be interesting to just really quickly go through some of the different stuff I've done in my past, because that might help answer a lot of your questions about why I'm doing what I'm doing now. Right. Um, before I do that, I, own, I don't see uh, what's going on on Twitch. Can you just describe what people see now? Uh, right now, they see you. Um, but we can easily queue up the, uh, the video of the um, robot or any of the other stuff that you have on your website. Got it. Uh, so I went to Stanford and got an undergraduate degree in mechanical engineering and a master's degree in product design, which back then was half in the engineering and half in the art departments. Um, for my master's project, I designed some uh, electromechanical devices for people who make traditional animated films where they do pencil tests. And it was basically a mechanical flipbook where they could put their drawings in it and it would see the movement in their animation before they actually went and made cells. Um, this was before single-frame video existed or computer animation existed. Um, after that, uh, I went to work for... Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, when you say uh, a mechanical version of like a flipbook, is that something... I'm almost envisioning that as something like a, like a flip clock display or something like that? Uh, think of it as a tiny machine that's on your desktop, and you take your stack of pencil drawings, and you put it in, and you close the lid, you push a button, and it goes... Flip, 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 the drawings. Okay. But, th but there's a light that's strobe to sync with the drawings as they're going through, so it looks like things are moving as you drew them. Okay. That, that's trying to make a little bit more sense. I, I did, In college, I did a little bit of pencil test animation. I was never terribly good at it. It was a stepping stone. I, you know, eventually you want to uh, learn to do 3D animation, um, and you know, the pencil test stuff was... Uh, I've never been a tremendously good hand artist, but... Did a little bit of that and had a lot of fun with it. Right, you've probably seen like films about uh, how Disney films are made. You see the the animators are flipping through their stack of drawings like this. Right. My machine replaced that flipping through drawings like. That. Excellent, uh, but please carry on about, uh, some of the other stuff that you've built. Sure. So uh, my advisor in school was a guy named David Kelly, who's a bit of a celebrity now in the design engineering community. And I went to work for him when he had an agency called uh, Hovey Kelly Design. And I wasn't actually an employee there as a freelancer, but uh, one of the things that I worked on there that uh, you might have heard of is, remember, Steve Jobs did the next Cube, that black Cube computer? Right. Uh, I'm the guy who designed the handle that went on the Cube. And uh, for those of you who are old enough to remember, the Cube didn't have a handle on it. So that was a pretty good indication of my design skills at that time. <laughs> <laughs> I got yelled at a lot. Um, so I enjoyed doing product design, but uh, because of the animation that I studied in school, I really had a hankering to make my own animated film. So I uh, left product design for a while and did the starving artist thing and worked in a really good uh, Mexican restaurant waiting on tables. And at night, I would 
work in a basement in Palo Alto making a film. And it took four years to make an 11-minute film. It's a real labor of love. Uh, it was on uh, four foot by six foot parallel panes of glass. And I would finger paint on the glass and then shoot a frame and then move the paint around and shoot a frame. And uh, it was about 7,000 paintings that I did for the movie, um, which was ridiculous. And if you're smart, you'll remember later to ask me about 7-Eleven and animation, because it's a good story. Um, so in the process of doing all that animation, uh, I got interested again in visual design and started a graphic design agency uh, that was in business for about 11, 12 years. Um, and I'm mentioning this just because it helps to explain my interest in visual design. And that, sorry. Shut up. How do I do that? I'll turn off my phone. I forgot. <laughs> no worries. Um, that company that I started was bought by another company called At Home Network, which bought or merged with Excite.com and became a stupid company called Excite At Home, which is the world's worst company name. Um, worked there for a couple of years with Golden Handcuffs and then joined some really smart people I met there uh, because they had started a company called Laszlo Systems which um, was building a platform for doing rich internet applications. And that was a nice uh, combination of visual design and engineering. Uh, left the smart people at Laszlo to start my own company called Small Town, which was a VC-based uh, internet company focused on small business advertising um, and uh, played more of a CEO. You know, people misuse the term CEO these days. Yeah. It's the guy in charge of the engineers who were building the stuff that mattered. Yeah, what um, what what time? What era was that when you when you uh, came up with this company, Small Town? Small Town started in two thousand three, and we got funded in two thousand four. Okay, so getting towards the what we would consider the more the more modern version of the internet that we know it is today. Yes. So, for example, we were struggling with whether or not we are going to use uh, ActiveScript uh, or you know, Flash yeah. versus HTML because HTML is getting better. It was around that time when people were trying to figure out what to use for rich internet applications. Right. Uh, small Town was bought by Cisco. Uh, worked on a little project at Cisco because of it. Uh, um, a telecommunications system for the home called Yumi. Um, and then did this thing which I thought was really great. Uh, I had this idea for a cloud-based restaurant, and I spent a lot of time learning about restaurants and how they work, and uh, did lots of uh, uh, interviews with restaurant owners and people who eat at restaurants, and put together this business plan that I thought was fantastic, but it, in my opinion, was a little too early, and now I'm seeing a lot of what we proposed back then in lots of food-related startups. Yeah. Uh, so that didn't work out. Uh, then I wrote an uh, uh, iPhone app called Peer Pressure, which was this fun app where you would set a goal and then you would have uh, people on email or Twitter or Facebook follow how you were doing on your goal. Uh, so if you're trying to lose weight, you'd have to, every day your phone would tell you, ask, tell you to 
type in how much weight you lost, and that would get broadcast to all your peers. So it was a, a automated way to make you uh, accountable to achieving your goals. Um, and after that, I decided I would just be a full-time freelance inventor. So that's what I'm doing now. Yeah. And building robots. Yeah. Um, I do want to come back to the robots because that's uh, something that I think a lot of our users are really excited about. I know it's something that I'm really excited about, uh, probably right. just because it looks like so much dang fun. And uh, <laughs> I'm, well, I'm sure there's a lo- there's an awful lot of work in there that is probably not a lot of fun. But um, let's talk a little bit about how you got started in that. Sure. Uh, when I was at Excited Home. Uh, being bored as the company went bankrupt and trying to figure out how to stay busy, uh, I decided I would build a super heavyweight BattleBot to compete on BattleBot, which at that time was on Comedy Central. Yeah. And I live in the area where the show was being filmed, so I was always in the audience. And finally, I had enough free time that I could say, okay, I'm going to build a robot. So I built this really, really ambitious robot called Crazy Susan. Uh, and just about the time that I completed it, the show was canceled. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so I had this stupidly complex, very heavy, very difficult to move around thing that I had created for no purpose. Um, and that's how I got started. Yeah. Now, we, uh, we're actually taking a look at the, the video now um, of the, the drive system prototype for Crazy Susan. And um, what... What sort of environment were you in that you had access to start experimenting with, with tools like these? Or what, what were some of the experiences that you'd had up to this point that um, like you start getting ideas around what to prototype for its, its drive and its, its movement and um, you know, the sort of weapon systems we were going to have? Um, yeah, had, uh, I mean, I've seen even for, uh, we're talking about uh, this is in the uh, early 2000s. I mean, CNC was still popular, but not very accessible then. Um, yeah. So what, what, what kind of uh, opportunities uh, let you start getting, getting involved in stuff like this? Uh, well, I did study mechanical engineering. Yeah. So that was always of interest to me. And I knew kind of how to get started. Um, I also, when I went to engineering school, drew things on vellum with pencils. So I wanted an excuse to learn CAD. So this was a project, and I I chose SolidWorks and got to be good at SolidWorks. Um, And then I just was part of a community of builders and designers and engineers. Um, I I knew a lot of people who worked in machine shops. Um, I knew people who were, you know, building incredible machines. uh, And I could tap into their uh, know-how and knowledge as well. Um, And then I had a good friend um, who had a very nice workshop and he was kind enough to let me work in there. Um, so I had all the tools, the basic mill, a lathe, drill press stuff to make it. Um, and then a lot of the parts on crazy Susan were just too difficult to make myself. Um, for example, there's this giant, uh, water jet cut magnesium plate that, um, gave me an excuse to try water jet cutting. Yeah. So on. Yeah. Boy, I really wish I could see what you guys saw. Are you, are you showing the crazy Susan video? Yeah, we're taking a look at that right now, and it's um, yeah, we're in in the in the kind of final section of the video where you're showing the uh, the completed the 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 finished robot. Got it. So when uh, 
BattleBots went off the air, there was still a strong community of builders um, who started uh, having other uh, events. So there was another uh, event that had super heavyweights, and I was able to take Crazy Susan to that. Yeah. Um, and then uh, one of the best known ones that's still around is RoboGames. And RoboGames, for anybody out there who wants to get into combat robots, is a great uh, place to get your feet wet because you don't have to be chosen to compete. Um, you just register and come and fight robots, and it's uh, it's a great way to get started. Yeah, and uh, well, one thing I want to mention uh, really quickly is that if you're not familiar with this show, uh, Meet the Maker is partially about my conversation with our guest, um, Hal Brucker, uh, today, but also it's about, if you're watching this live on Twitch, it's also about your conversation with Hal. Um, if you have any questions for him as, uh, as our conversation unfolds, please ask them and we will get those over to him. And we actually have one of our first uh, questions, a uh, really great question coming in from the chat, and that is from Sue Laren. Uh, how much electronic, electrical and electronics knowledge comes out of mechanical engineering? <laughs> uh, basics. Right, and it really depends on the engineer. I've I've learned more about electronics and programming, building combat robots than I ever did in school. Um, there is a big difference between a mechanical engineer and a, a, a electrical engineer, just like there's a difference between a a, a heart surgeon and a surgeon who operates on stomachs. Um, but there's a lot of overlap. Uh, I know enough. Not to kill myself. That's a good way to put it. That's a great place uh, to start. Yeah, <laughs> don't kill yourself. Uh, yeah, although I still make mistakes. The, uh, the, the video you're watching now with that robot called Whoops, um, my daughter was driving it. My daughter's 11, and we should talk about her at some point because it's a really interesting story. Absolutely. And she was helping me uh, get Whoops ready for our next fight, and the chassis was opened. And a good friend that she had made at RoboGames had given her a, friend, a metal friendship bracelet. And she reached over into the robot, and her metal bracelet shorted out a battery terminal. And it turned into a little ring of fire around her wrist. Um, so that was in her introduction to the danger of electricity and uh, dad being really stupid. Yeah. Was she otherwise, was she otherwise all right? She was a little scared, but everything was fine. Excellent. Excellent, yeah. excellent. Yeah, I think I was more scared than she was. <laughs> yeah, that uh, I think that would frighten me. Uh, that would frighten me as well. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's true of a lot of different uh, engineering disciplines and a lot of other you know uh, disciplines. Is that as long as your discipline touches other things, you're going to pick up little pieces here and there. You're still going to have your your speciality, but you know you're going to pick up a lot of other stuff along the way. Yeah, and I, I often. Uh, Talk to people and I say, you know, I wish I was 16 right now because it's such a great time to be an engineer. You know, if you don't know how a circuit works, you can go on YouTube and learn. Uh, and that wasn't always that way. It was much more difficult to learn things and share ideas and share knowledge. And man, it's just such a great time to be a maker right now. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, I, I still maintain that I have uh, almost zero understanding of electronics and how electricity works. I try to read stuff on circuits and circuit design, um, and it still completely goes over my head. Um, but I am able to look at a schematic, follow it along, and at least, you know, maybe if I don't get it right the first time, I'm able to troubleshoot 
on my way through it to, to get it working. Um, and there's also, you know, wonderful learning applications. I mean, stuff you can download for your telephone that just let you put circuits together in a completely virtualized environment so that you don't, you, I mean, electronic components are relatively inexpensive. The only thing that's really frustrating is uh, sometimes they take a while to get to your house. And that's a huge bummer when, you know, okay, you shorted out this integrated circuit and it doesn't work anymore and now you need to order another one. Uh, and maybe that's going to set you back three or four days and that's a pain. Um, but the nice thing is this stuff is cheap and uh, you can... Uh, the uh, one thing a, a friend of ours um, from the Raspberry Pi Foundation, uh, Matt Richardson, loves to use the phrase afford failure. I think that quote actually comes from Linus Torvalds, the creator of Linux. Um, but you know, it's, when you can, you can make a lot of mistakes, and that's a great way to learn when you don't have to be constantly afraid of the, the uh, consequences of, of screwing something up. Right. Yeah. Right. So uh, maybe this would be a good time to talk about BattleBots. Yes, absolutely. Um, should we get, get ready to look at, uh, look at ringleader ringmaster, dude. ringmaster, ringmaster. Oh, my, my apologies. Oh my, my apologies. God. Oh my God. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, actually you, well, we, we touched on robo games a little bit and, uh, sure. if I'm not mistaken, that's just the competition that's local here in the Bay area. It is local to the Bay Area, but it's an international competition. Teams okay. from all over the world come for this thing. Okay, um, but I've been there a couple times, and I, I would say it's kind of maybe the more the more punk rock version of of, of BattleBots. <laughs> it doesn't have the glitzy presentation, but the competition is there, and it and it's it's real and it's amazing. Yeah, let's just say the a lot of the teams that do very well at BattleBots are at Robo Games doing very well. Also. Yeah, it's the same level of competition. Yeah. Um, so right now we're going to be taking a look at, um, the video from, uh, from robot games here in the Bay area. It's a competition between whoops and what, what's, what was the other name of this robot? The, the one with the kind of two big spinning vertical spinning wheels. Uh, that, that's called counter revolution. Okay. Uh, so, yeah. So this is actually whoops's first fight ever. Uh, my daughter Hannah is driving. Whoops! Um, and she got a lucky hit in and uh, tipped him over. And what kind of robot is is Whoops? It looks like a, like a flipper robot, or um, do they call them flippers or catapults or something like that. Yeah, uh, because the uh, the robots that have kinetic weapons are really dangerous. They're so dangerous; it's it's difficult to test them at home. Uh, for Hannah, because she was still pretty young back then, we wanted to make one that didn't have a kinetic weapon. In this case, it's just uh, a very strong pushing robot with interchangeable plows that can go on the front. Okay. In this case, it's a plow designed to fight, um, to get underneath the other opponent. Um, you know, so we had a plow to fight uh, horizontal spinners, a plow to fight vertical spinners, and then the one she used in this fight. Right. Um, and moving on to BattleBots, let's take a look at um, at this other one, at, at Ringmaster. So what was the experience of, of moving? Uh, is, was this your first time? Well, actually, no, because you were talking about um, uh, competing in BattleBots back uh, in the early days on, on uh, Comedy Central. But uh, what was the, the experience of, of uh, getting involved in this, this newer era of the, uh, of the show? 
Wow, I could talk about that for a long time. Uh, well, you can think about it in phases. The first is the work you have to do to get accepted onto the show. And it's a considerable amount of work. You have to uh, create a whole, a whole CAD version of uh, what you're proposing to build. You have to make a video. Um, you have to fill out a form. Um, and there's a lot of people applying. So you put in a lot of work before you even know if you're going to get to participate. Then you find out that you're participating and you have this ridiculous deadline. <laughs> uh, I, I think I, I had about six weeks to build and test and operate the uh, ringmaster, which is a lot of work for something that complex. And uh, then there's showing up and actually competing, which was about a 10 day uh, uh, competition down in Los Angeles. Um, and it's an interesting experience because it's a single elimination tournament. So you put in this huge amount of work, and if something goes wrong, or you fight another robot that's just designed to really beat you up, uh, you lose, and it's over. Yeah. <laughs> so it's very intense in that way. Uh, it's an interesting experience. Uh, when, And there's the whole television element. So you, you come into the open space, and the crowds are cheering and there's playing rock music and there's these flashing lights and the cameras are pointing at you and then you put your robot in there and there's more flashing lights and then it starts and it's three minutes yeah that's if you last the full fight um and to put it in perspective hannah's driving and she was fortunate enough to win her first fight and she was shaking <laughs> Right. And that the camera came over to interview her and I just, you know, made the cameras go away because she was hyperventilating and shaking. That's how intense it is. Yeah. I mean, now I these... granted she's a kid, but it's it's intense, especially the very first time. Yeah. I mean, when you're when you're dealing with with pressure like that of, of dealing with you know months and months and months of work all being decided in three minutes. I mean, even if you even if you win, there's no way that you're going to walk away from that, you know steely nerves and all. I mean, unless you're, you're really used to this style of competition and yeah, that, that doesn't even guarantee that you aren't going to be put against uh, somebody like, um, I can't remember the, I remember the name of the robot from the first season, uh, tombstone that, right. you know, just this hugely violent robotic threshing machine that just decimated people right up until the end. Um, right. You know, or maybe you might something that might be a little bit more of a fair competition. I mean, either way, you know, these are, these are these are tough games that are decided quickly, right? So the highs are very high and the lows are very low. To answer the question about what's it like, um, it's it's definitely a, a, a good experience from that perspective. Um, and on the topic of like a tombstone or a, a minotaur, that also a lot of those robots who do so well are robots that have been around for ten to fifteen years, and those builders have been refining those machines uh, over the years at places like Robo Games. Um, and to bring a brand new robot that you're putting into the arena for the very first time, it can be very difficult to compete against them. And uh, that's not to say they're doing anything wrong. They're, I mean, they've been working hard for 15 years making these robots amazing. Um, but when you only have six weeks to build something that's been refined over 15 years, 10 to 15 years, it's very, very difficult. Um, having said that... A lot of people do it, right? There were some rookies and brand new bots we'd never seen before at BattleBots that did very, very well. So 
it's a it's an interesting uh, interesting experience. Yeah, and so I want to talk uh, dive a little bit deeper into there um, because there's a lot of combat robot designs that have been tried and true over the years. I mean, there's the the spinners, the vertical spinners. Um, you know, people people always love to hate a wedge robot, um, and yeah. You know, so these these are robots that you know maybe some of them are simpler to build than others. Um, I mean, it looks I know it looks from the outside as a as an audience member. You know how hard how hard can it be to just build a robot with a big you know vertical spinning drum? Uh, and I'm sure it's actually right. quite difficult. Um, how do you approach making a new design, um, especially when? Yeah, you have you have plenty of time to design it, but in six weeks to build it, that doesn't give you a whole lot of time to back out or or work around troubles with your design. Um, if you could talk a little bit about that, um, especially because we, in in that competition, we saw some really really wild designs that um, I think even even on the outside, it, you know, maybe you might think oh, I don't know if that's going to work. That you know that <laughs> that spinning blade looks doesn't look like it has the strongest attachment to the rest of the body. Um, Right, right. Uh, I think different builders are in the game for different reasons. Some people are in it to win it, as they say, and they build very simple, familiar, strong, reliable robots. And other people are in it, uh, and I would describe myself as one of these people, although I'd love to win. But uh, for me, a lot of the fun is building something that people haven't tried before or something that I've never tried before. So if you were to like look at the robots I've built since my first one, they're all pretty different. Um, so I think uh, part of the answer to your question is it depends which builder you're talking to. Yeah. Um, sometimes, and for me, this is the most interesting part of the sport, is it's like an evolution. Someone will try something new, and it's very successful. And then the whole community has to figure out how to beat it. And it's becoming more and more rare that someone can do that, but you still see it every once in a while, and it's, it's really fun. I think at uh, this uh, last season of BattleBots, although it's not completely new, people did a better job with it. There were a lot of robots that had saws that came down and cut through you. Uh, and uh, one of those in particular, uh, Red Devil, did really well. Um, and it's just a really difficult engineering a challenge, and I think he pulled it off very well. Um, so there's the fun of trying something new, but you're at the risk of just getting clobbered by Tombstone and and the likes are thrown out of the arena by Bronco. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's a risk. It's a risk, but it's a fun risk to take. Yeah. Um, um, regarding regarding your question about the schedule, I think myself and a lot of the people who are building new robots, uh, trying to meet the schedule, you're making compromises up to the very end, and in my case, one of the compromises that killed me was um, uh, I have that metal spinning uh, ring that goes around the outside. Uh, we finished uh, CNCing that giant 95-pound piece of steel about a week before the competition. And the plan was to get it heat-treated uh, to make it stronger and more durable. Uh, but the heat-treater told us that that metal ring might warp when it got heat-treated. So at the last minute, we had to make the decision, do we go with a softer steel or do we heat treat it like we were going to, but risk bending it? And if it bends, it wouldn't work. So we decided, let's just go with a softer steel. And that's actually the part that failed in our fight against Bite Force and why we lost. Mm, that's a shame. Um, 
I did, uh, well, we have a couple of uh, really awesome questions from the chat. Uh, one is from uh, FryGuy1013. What's the most exotic material that you've ever worked with? Huh. I would say, actually, can I go get a part and show it to you? Of course. I'll be right back. And while he is going to get, oh, well, there it is right there. Never mind. So this is the chassis from the Ringmaster. Right. Um, this is machined out of one magnesium billet. So this was one big block before it was machined. Um, Magnesium lights on fire. <laughs> yes, it does. And if it lights on fire, I know this one. If it lights on fire, uh, you, you don't put the fire out because the fire doesn't go out. Right. You especially don't put it out with water. No. Because it will explode. So I don't know if that's very exotic material, but it's, I think, an exotic use of the material. Um, I don't think very many people machine a solid billet of aluminum like that because you have you have hundreds of pounds of chips yeah. that are little fireworks ready to go off. Um, so the magnesium was an interesting challenge. Um, it machines like butter though. It's great to machine. Um, and it's remarkably strong for it's, it has a really high strength to weight ratio. Mm -hmm. uh, this, this weighs about 30% less than the equivalent aluminum. So it's one of the ways that we were able to get a big heavy ring around the outside. Yeah. Um, and another question that came in from the chat is, um, uh, did you, well, did you do all the metal work yourself? No, for two reasons. One, um, there's not enough time for me to do it all myself in the case of battle bots, at least. Yeah. Uh, and two, uh, the machine that made this, uh, was a giant, giant mill. Um, Maybe this would be a good time to show one of the videos. Um, Which one? If you go to Robots, the Ringmaster. Um, if you scroll down, there's one with a Team Black and Blue logo. Yeah. Let's see if I can get this. That's a time lapse that I made of this part being made. Um, give me a quick second and I will be able to pull that up. Um, in the meantime, start, start telling some of the, the story here. Right. So this part was on the CNC mill, uh, for six days straight, uh, 24 hours a day. That's how long it took to make that part. Um, and this would be a great opportunity to talk about some of my sponsors <laughs> on the wall back here. Uh, the one that says SVP Silicon Valley precision. Yeah. That's, that's the great machine shop that made that part. Awesome to work with. If you need some complicated CNC machining done, call those guys, Silicon Valley precision. And just so I don't forget proto labs, a website where you can email a file and get a perfectly made part back. Uh, they do additive, they do subtractive manufacturing, and now they also do uh, injection molding. Max Amps, 
fantastic batteries for any project that you need a, a lithium-ion battery. I don't know if they do other kinds, but the uh, uh, those they make great batteries. And then Esprit is the um, CAM software that Silicon Valley Precision uses to make really, really difficult CNC parts. All right. And that's amazing software. Let's take a look at this video of... Um of Ringmaster, Ringmaster being made. And you said this is a, a, a six-day CNC? Yep. Uh, and this is just uh, for the single for the single part? Yep, for that yeah. one part I just showed you. Yeah. Is um, it playing? I can't see. Is it, it is playing. playing. Yeah, and uh, right now it's just, it looks like it's milling out the um, the center of the piece here. And, and given my, okay, I finally saw a hand there. Because otherwise, given <laughs> given the scale that I'm used to seeing CNC at, I would have assumed that this is this billet is maybe I don't know, twelve maybe fourteen inches wide or long. No, I think it's uh, forty eight by forty eight. Yeah, that is that is incredible. Right. So those guys really pulled a rabbit out of a hat. And I remember uh, towards the end of the video, you'll see the uh, they do a different setup where the a huge uh, end mill comes down and cuts out some windows in the side of the part. And it was chattering like crazy, you know, it was like day six and it just sounded like the whole part was just going to explode. Uh, so I literally had to leave the building cause the sound was driving me crazy. Yeah. Uh, so I was so worried that something was going to go wrong. Yeah. Especially when, I mean, you're, you're on day six of this part. Obviously at that point, you're not going to be salvaging the part. You know, if anything no. goes terribly no. wrong and, and chatter, I am only barely learning CNC. Uh, and I'm, you know, because I'm working with relatively um, accessible machines like the wood CNC routers, even though I'm, I'm not, I, I, I do enjoy working with wood. Uh, I am much more interested in working at least with aluminum. So I'm trying to see what some of my capabilities uh, to uh, do this on my own are. And uh, chatter is is nightmare inducing because you either, <laughs> you either think you're going to lose the part, the bit, both, uh, might end up, you know, breaking something and shooting it across your workshop, which, you know, maybe that's not the worst thing in the world. Um, but yeah, that, that stuff is really unnerving. Yeah. You don't want it to happen the couple of days before you have to drive down to LA and compete. No, especially because, you know, even if you, uh, well, it, but by that point, you wouldn't even have time to machine another part, assuming that you could even easily get your hands on another part of this size. Right. Okay, now I'm now I'm seeing. I was wondering if you managed to do this entire part with only three axes, and now I'm seeing that you starting to yeah. uh, get around the outside of it. This must be a massive CNC machine. Yeah, uh, let's see. The bed on the first one. There's two machines there. The first one, I think, the bed was about twenty feet long. Yeah, that's. That is incredible. Yep. Silicon Valley Precision. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, uh, I'm going to take a quick look at the uh, the the chat here. Um, uh, do you have any advice for those trying to get a potential spot on Season 3 of BattleBots? Is there a season three of BattleBots? Do you know something I don't know? Uh, I, I, I don't know. I haven't seen anything confirmed yet. I certainly hope so. Yeah, me too. Uh, assuming there's going to be a season three, you have to get into, you have to wear the shoes of the producers and empathize with what they need, right? 
They need a robot that's going to show up and work. So something about your presentation needs to convince them that you're capable of building a robot that works. Uh, clearly, the best thing you could do is build it now and show it to them. But that's a risk, of course. Uh, the other thing they're looking for is originality. Uh, they want to keep their audience's interest high. And if the same robots keep showing up, uh, that's not going to keep the audience entertained. Um, so I would try and come up with an idea that has some element in it that uh, makes the producers go, wow, I'd like to see if that actually works. Um, and then another thing they're looking for uh, which I think helped us get accepted is, uh, how would I describe it? Uh, a robot that uh, looks good in front of the cameras, right? I, because of my uh, background in design, it's important to me that things look good. And um, I think we had a nice theme with the spinning ring and the circus theme and the robot looking like it came from a circus. And Hannah, the driver, was wearing a ringmaster's outfit. So... There's a fine line there. At some point, you get to be kind of corny and tacky. But on the other hand, they don't want just another aluminum box with wheels on the side. Right. Um, this, so I think those elements all help. Yeah. And that's one of the things that always really impressed me about the show BattleBots is, is while their presentation, as they, as they aired it, you know, it was a little corny um, yeah. and, and, and a little goofy. And the things that started to grate on me early on of how at the start of every fight it, you know, hearing it's robot fighting time. I ended up loving that more than anything else. Well, not more than anything else, but I ended up loving it a lot more than I was expecting of, of just hearing that and then getting, getting set for the next fight. Um, but that aside, I mean, you peel back the layers of that corniness and there's a lot of really authentic maker engineer stories there. And, and uh, I, I thought, um, that show is absolutely wonderful, and I certainly hope that uh, that there is a, an opportunity for a season three. But uh, you you were mentioning yeah, I, there. A, I um. I remember somebody telling me that if you could take apart a car and put it back together, you learned everything you ever needed to know about engineering. Right, all the mechanical systems are in there, the electrical systems, and so on. A lot of that is true for building a robot too. Yeah. Um. So if you can build a battlebot, you've you know, you know a lot. Yeah. And in the and, and, and the reason I bring that up is personally, I know why they don't do it, but personally I wish there was a little bit more of a an element to the show that went into the robot and explained how things work and why things don't work and a little bit more engineering involved. And uh they might do that in the future, but I think a lot of people um don't have the patience for that. Yeah. I know I certainly would, but yeah. Yes. <laughs> unfortunately, their audience is made of more folks than just that than just me. Um, right. And so you want you mentioned there, uh, Hannah, your your driver. Um, uh, do you want to talk about your the reason why you wanted to have your daughter also be the driver of your robot and uh, how you how you assembled your team? Well, the real reason is I'm a terrible driver. <laughs> <laughs> so that solved that problem. Uh, you know, I've been building these robots for a long time, and as she was growing up, she saw what I was doing and got more and more interested in it. Um, it's kind of a dangerous thing, and uh, I think a lot of parents' expectations for how quickly kids can learn STEM-related stuff 
is out is is not real. Uh, it's it's a very slow ramp. So I wanted to start slowly with her, and you know, this is a motor, this is a battery, this is a screwdriver kind of thing. So we built um, two identical sixty-pound robots that were very very simple, and she drove one, and I drove the other. They're called Black and Blue. I think there's some video. Yeah. Of black and blue you can show um there's some cute ones of her driving um and so she started driving her own robot and um actually doing much better than me uh and beyond um just getting introduced to basic engineering principles the idea of being in front of an audience and being under the stress of a competition, I think was a good thing to expose her to at a young age. Um, and then when it, she got a little bit older and driving bigger robots like whoops, and then the ringmaster, um, I think it's just because she's better at it than I am. Um, she's a really good driver. Um, might be because she's younger and her coordination skills are better than mine, but I think mainly she, she doesn't get as stressed out as I do. I'm like, I, I got to win and, I think she just thinks it's fun. Um, what is it that, that makes a good driver? Uh, the hand-eye coordination is fundamental, and then there's the strategy. And for every type of robot, the strategy is different. And if you can stick to the strategy, that makes you a good driver. Uh, in the case of whoops, it's always keeping pointed at your opponent and then slamming into them at the right moment and not letting them uh, hit you in your soft spots like your wheels. In the case of the ringmaster, it's very different. In the case of the ringmaster, our number one enemy is the arena. We don't want to hit the walls because it takes all, all of our own energy and, and uh, focus it back at our own machine, and we don't get any points for beating up the walls. So when Hannah was driving, her goal, and you can see this if you watch some of the videos, is to stay in the middle and let the opponent come to that come to her to avoid getting slammed into the walls um and then uh i think the most important thing about being a good driver is recognizing that you need to be a good driver and i don't mean that flippantly but it's a lesson i learned myself which is you put all this time into building a robot and you go to the competition you've only driven it a few minutes and the driving skills are equally or even more important than the actual machine you're driving. Um, and you can see that if you go to RoboGames, uh, the best drivers win. It's not yeah. the best machines. Yeah, I mean, because there's so much strategy around maneuvering, uh, particularly in BattleBots, where you have, um, you know, the, the arena itself is weaponized to make sure that you don't get caught out, um, that you don't get caught out by the, the weaponized arena that you're trying to lure your opponent into letting them do that while keeping yourself safe, um, driving around a weapon that might be superior to yours. Um, right. Yeah, because we saw a lot of that in BattleBots of, of applying the strategy of, of letting them get overconfident or, or get cocky with a, a weapon that's maybe has you outgunned, but you can, you can still let them hurt themselves. Right, and the... The proof of that is, if you look at the teams that did well, even the teams that had new robots that did well didn't have new drivers. Right? I don't think there are very many cases where a new driver and a new robot showed up 
and did well. Um, so new robot, old drivers is a pretty decent combination. Yeah. Um, and I want to uh, actually uh, check in on chat here and see if there's any... Uh, um, no, not, no. Uh, and again, if you have any questions for Hal while we're talking here, please leave them in the chat below and we'll make sure to get those over to him. Uh, I do want to change gears a little bit here because you were, you've been touching on this entire time. I have this background in traditional design um, and you've also applied that along with your, um, your mechanical engineering knowledge to produce these robots that are elegant and look great and, um, and also are uh, strong combatants in the arena. Um, where do you find that crossover between traditional design um, as it applies to like fine art design, graphic design, and um, your your engineering design? Um, part of it is uh, personal interest. You know, as a maker, what do you want to spend your time on? And I think part of it is philosophy of what is a well-engineered thing. Um, at one extreme, you have people who, if it works, it's done. And other people who say, if it's not beautiful, who cares if it works? Um, and I think the most successful designers are the people who acknowledge both points of view and try and come up with a machine or a solution that does both. Um, and that's, that's part of what the Stanford product design program was about. It was not just getting something to work and not just something to get that looks good, but combining the two, uh, schools of thought into one beautiful, elegant solution. Um, so I'm always striving to do that. It's just so darn hard. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, uh, the expression it's. It's really difficult to make something simple. It's true. Uh, and it's a frustrating point of view because when you do something that's really simple and looks really good and works really well, people look at it and go, so what? Because it's so obvious once you've gotten there. But the process of getting there is very, very painful. Yeah. Um, throw out a lot of complicated solutions before you get to something that's really simple and elegant. Yeah, it's it's almost like the same uh, thing that always plagues uh, people that are very good at infrastructure. Things like, um, well, your bank or the your mobile phone carrier or um, you know your your broadband provider is that when it works, nobody cares. Yeah. Uh, people only care when it's not working well. They'll, they'll certainly complain about it when it's not working the way it ought to be. But when it does, it just kind of fades into the background and and. Uh, and, you know, just becomes an everyday thing that you, you come to expect. And it's so hard. I mean, in the, in the uh, combat robot world, uh, you know, there have been several occasions where I've designed something that people look at it and they go, wow, that's really too beautiful to fight. And then you put it in the arena against Tombstone and they were right. <laughs> you know? it's, like, it's like, damn it, that darn spinning bar just ripped me to shreds again. Yeah. But it sure looked good for a few minutes. Certainly did. Um, another great question. This one is from uh, Eman Made. Uh, do you care to touch on how you balance your desire to make versus uh, your need to run a business? Uh, my desire to make greatly exceeds 
my desire to make money. <laughs> but unfortunately, everybody needs some money to get by. Yeah. Um, for me, at this point in my career, it's a calculation of risk. Um, everything I'm working on, and maybe we'll have some time to go through those quickly. Yeah. Are, are there, there are more examples of things that might someday make some money. Um, so it's, it's entrepreneurial in that sense. Um, I'm fortunate to have some successes in the past where I feel like it's not that risky for me to make some stuff and try and go sell it. Um, when I was younger, that would have been much more difficult. Um, but even, even having said that, um, you know, sometimes you wonder when you've put in a couple of months on a project and spent a lot of time and money and it doesn't lead to anything financially beneficial, uh, like I should just go get a job, <laughs> just go get a job and, and, and make some money. But, uh, I'm pretty good at, uh, resisting the temptation to get a job. Yeah. Um, I'm going to just get this stuff ready to pull up so we can show some of the, uh, some of the things that you are working on. But um, uh, if you don't mind uh, sharing, like, what some of the current projects you're tackling are. Sure. So uh, I've done some medical stuff, really simple medical stuff, and I'll, uh, I, I have some show and tell. Oh, excellent. And actually, so, actually, let me let me get back to you here. I was just going to take a quick peek at your, at your website and some of the uh, like the central line clamp is what I was just taking a look at. Yeah, that's what I'm going to um, do show and tell for first. So here's the problem. Uh, this is called a central line, a pick line. Mm -hmm. uh, when you go to the hospital and get sick, uh, they insert it into your arm goes into a big vein right there and uh, it goes through your arm up towards your heart and it's a very efficient way to deliver chemotherapy or nutrients or uh, antibiotics and when people get these pick lines <clears throat> they, they average about two weeks in the hospital where all they're doing is sitting in the bed so that a nurse can come by and do the infusion and hospitals don't like that they want to send you home it costs a lot of money to have someone sitting in a bed. So they want to free up the beds. So they want to send you home with your pick line so the nurse can visit your house and do the infusion. The problem is that about 15% of the people who get these pick lines are also illegal drug abusers. Yeah. So you send an a intravenous drug abuser with one of these home, and they go, I've got a portal to my heart, and they inject uh, drugs that... Uh, either kill them with an overdose or more often get a horrible, horrible infection deep inside their, their, uh, near their heart. And it costs a lot of money to get rid of an infection near their heart. So I designed this clamp. It's a very simple device. Um, see that? Yep, you can see that pretty well. Put a little less focus works. there. How's that? Yeah, that's good. So this clamps over the lines. And snaps shut. 
So at this point, uh, you can't infuse anything into the line. Uh, if you want to take the clamp off, you turn this knob. Mm -hmm. And when it does so, it breaks itself. So now it can't be shut again. Oh, okay. So it's a single-use device. It's a single-use device. So it doesn't completely prevent the patient from tampering with the line. But if they do tamper with the line, the nurse knows it. Right. So, uh, so the hospitals are more or less reluctant to send people home because they know that if someone's abusing the line, they'll know about it. So that's one thing I've been working on. If there are any medical device uh, companies out there, give me a call. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you have a favorite you'd like me to do next? Um, we actually have a bunch of... Um uh, great questions from the chat that are, are bringing us back into the realm of, of combat robotics. No, no big surprise there. Um, one is, uh, did Adam Savage stop by to look at your robot? Uh, and is there any spending limit placed on you by the show? And that is from Lundegrass. Adam Savage did not come by and look at my robot. At least not while I was there. Yeah. Well, what a meanie. Yeah. He was only there for one day, though. Yeah. <laughs> um, however. Uh, what's his name? Uh, oh, who's the other guy from Mythbusters? Not Jamie. Um, um, Grant Grant Imahara. Grant Imahara. Yeah, he was just uh, with us at Maker Fair um, back in uh, September in New York. So I have a good story about Grant. Uh, Hannah and I were competing at Robo Games. Hannah was doing well, and then uh, about an hour after a previous fight, which she had won. The judges came over, and Grant was one of the judges. And they said, we're really sorry to tell you this, but there was a mistake in the judging, and you actually lost. This is an hour after the match. Ugh. And Hannah's mouth just dropped open. It's like, no way. This isn't fair. So it was, she was out of the tournament because of this decision. So um, she was really upset. She was, I think, seven at the time. And she was really pumped up about winning. Uh, and Grant was very graceful about it. Uh, did a good job t explaining it to her. Um, so I made the decision, and it was within the rules, that Hannah could drive my robot from then on. Um, and she did really well. And uh, I think she, well, she beat the team from Brazil. If you watch BattleBots, they did Minotaur. Mm -hmm. She beat them in a great fight. Um, and then I think she ended up getting a bronze or silver. I'm not sure which. And Grant uh, came over and congratulated her. And, uh, and, and she watched Mythbusters, so she knew who he was. And, and it was a great moment. So he really took the time to um, make it a teachable moment. And uh, I appreciated that he, he did that. Why are we talking about that? Oh, Adam Savage. Adam Savage, yeah. Um, and then we have uh, another one. Uh, this is from, uh, again, from Solarin. Have you ever designed a robot specifically to counter a specific opponent? No. Uh, there are people that do that, though, uh, but not me. Yeah. Um, what, what do you think about that kind of strategy? Uh, a lot of people describe combat robot as rock, paper, scissors. You know, a spinner against a wedge. Wedge is... Got a good chance. Wedge against 
hammer, hammer might win. So a lot of uh, doing well in a competition is based on the luck of the draw, who you fight against. So if you were going to try and design a robot to beat a particular opponent, you'd have to be really lucky to actually end up fighting that opponent. Um, unless you've got some kind of grudge against uh, horizontal spinners or vertical spinners. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and you know, it's interesting. Uh, you're starting to see a lot of combat, combat robots that are what we've been calling Swiss, Ar Swiss, Swiss Army robots, where they have lots of different attachments that they put on based on who they're going to be fighting against. Um, Chaos Core had one of those at BattleBots that did really, really well. I mean, you're seeing more and more of that, I think. Yeah. Do you find that that sort of design uh, affords you any any compromises in your design that you might have interchangeable weapon systems, but uh, those individual joins might not be as strong as a, as, a, a, as a dedicated mounting point? Yes, I think your observation is correct. Yeah. However, that doesn't mean it's not a good idea. It's just a different kind of challenge. If you're gonna if you're gonna have an attachment that's a vertical spinner, it's not gonna be as good as the robot that's just a vertical spinner. But maybe it's good enough to do what a vertical spinner needs to do. Yeah. And uh, Lindegrass wanted to ask uh, also: Is there more than one competition to attend, or is there like a robot fighting circuit? I mean, obviously we've been talking about BattleBots. That's a show that. Hopefully you might be able to get on, um, or you can also compete in robo games. Um, are there other competitions out there? There are. There are competitions all over the world. Actually, there's some in Brazil that are very good. Um, the Brazilian team is very active. Um, and there are a bunch in the United States. However, there are very, very few that let you do big, heavyweight robots. Um, they're, they come in all sizes, including down to a pound. Um, and I would recommend if you're thinking of getting started to start with the little ones and then build a big one. Um, there's a com robot combat group on Facebook, which is a good resource for finding out where the competitions are and when they're happening. Uh, there's another one called Builders Database, which is where a lot of the competitions post that their competitions are happening. It's the internet. You can find them. No problem. Yeah. Um, do you find that the skills that people would uh, get out of starting in some of the uh, the lower the lower weight divisions, like the one or two pound robots, do your design and engineering skills translate well to the heavier weight classes? Absolutely. Yeah. The big robots are just bigger little robots. Yeah. So those those things all all scale really nicely. Yeah, they scale in strange ways. Like a brushless motor on a little robot in proportion to the rest of the robot is so powerful that those little robots just hit each other literally out of the arena. I mean, they go 10 feet in the air. Um, but that's not going to happen with the heavy robots. It's kind of like, uh, it's, it, they're called insect class. It's like insects in the real world, right? Like an ant can lift some phenomenal amount of weight, even though it's really tiny. The the little robots are that way as well. They're fun to watch. Yeah, no, there's a um, uh, uh, 
a local guy here. You you might know him. Uh, we've done some stuff with him in the past, named uh, Zach Lytle. He uh, has yeah. a, uh, a a wonderful little company uh, called uh, Bot Bash Party, where he makes these uh, these tiny little combat robots that you can, he sets up in a card ta- table, brings them out to events or kids parties, and lets people uh, get a, a taste of of fighting robots. And he actually just did a live stream at a, a place right near here in San Francisco um, called Showdown at the Folsom Street Foundry, and there was a live stream on Twitch of it. And uh, it was a really, really fun-looking event. Of um, Yeah, I've driven those little robots. They're yeah, fun. They're, they are a ton of fun. Um, so if, you, if somebody is interested in getting started uh, in building combat robots, and maybe they don't, maybe they have a little bit of engineering skill or a little bit of um, electronic skill, um, uh, people are tossing around the the link of, of Builders DB on the uh, the chat here. Um, what are some of the other resources they can find to connect to other designers? Uh, maybe find a team or join a team. Um, how can people get started doing this stuff? And what what sort of skills should they be learning? Uh, for some resources, uh, one of the veteran builders, the guy who does um, Nightmare has a website called Robot Marketplace. Sells a lot of the stuff that you need to get started. Um, it's a one-stop shop. And uh, I'm not just saying that because I want them to do well. I, it's, it's genuinely a great resource for things. So if you need to buy some robot stuff, he's got a lot of it there. That's great. Uh, uh, because you're listening to this broadcast, you probably know about McMaster Car. But if you don't, it will change your life. You can't be a maker without knowing about McMaster.com. Yeah, they just go there. <laughs> have the if 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 a part exists, it is in the McMaster car catalog. Yeah, just go through the catalog and you'll come up with ideas for things to build. Yeah. Um, in terms of the community, I don't have a good answer for that. Actually, um, it's not like we get together. Well, for me at least, maybe they're doing it without inviting me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, getting together and having secret meetings about building robots—it's—it's it's about forming a team and working with your team. Um, and then go to the events, and then you'll meet the other builders, and they're really great people. It's a very bizarre environment where you're trying to beat the hell out of each other and then eating pizza and talking about it. Um, they're very, very friendly, very, very helpful. So I guess my advice is just build something and go to Robo Games and meet everybody. And, and you know, the cliche is you got to fail often to succeed sooner just build a robot that doesn't work and just go there and see how it breaks. Yeah. It's, it's just a way to get your feet wet. Um, Got another question from the chat here from, uh, from Lundgrass again. Uh, do you have any thoughts on the teams that have secondary robots or any of those with flying capabilities? Uh, this was the first season that BattleBots allowed drones. It was an interesting experiment. It made for some dramatic failures, which made good TV. Um, and I think it will eventually lead to something cool. Flying robots will be cool, but it's going to take a while and a lot of experimenting to get there. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, I'm sorry, what was the other part of the question? Um, uh, just uh, thoughts on, on teams with secondary robots. And you've experimented with that oh. a little bit with like, um, oh. Oh, uh, black and blue and yeah. Yeah, I think we saw that in BattleBots last year with, uh, or this past season with Witch Doctor. Uh, 
I haven't seen one do well, but that doesn't mean they shouldn't do well. Um, it's just hard to build a robot that weighs half as much as Tombstone and survive it. Yeah. It doesn't mean it can't be done. Uh, we, uh, Hannah and I built, uh, would fight the two sixty pounders as a 120 pound multi-bot just for the fun of it. Um, we did okay. The time that we fought Turo, which is a 120 pound version of Minotaur, uh, Hannah got hit so hard that she flew in the air, hit the arena wall and bounced back into the arena. I got hit so hard that I flew into the air, went over the barrier and landed on the floor on the other side of the barrier. Uh, so the strength to weight, weight ratio of their robot just destroyed us. Yeah. Um, I, I think that, and, and please feel free to tell me if I'm, I'm wrong in my assumption here. It seems that, you know, like you were saying earlier, if it comes down to being good drivers, the advantage that two robot, two robots can have over a single is this, that there's, you have, Two targets are harder to hit than one. Well, I mean, it provides more targets, but it also provides a lot of distraction. And if you have two very good drivers, you could have an advantage there. Again, assuming your weapons are strong enough to overcome that one, that single larger opponent. Right, and also keep in mind, different tournaments have different rules about multibots. Right. Uh, some of them say you have to destroy 50% of the other opponent. Uh, in the case where Han and I got thrown out of the arena... Uh, once I was out of the arena, even though Hannah was still in there and operating, we lost. Um, it depends a lot on the, the rules as well. I, uh, we've been beaten by uh, multi-bot wedges, which are just frustrating because they're like gnats, and it's hard to destroy them, and they're just coming at you at all from all sides. I think those can be very effective, but BattleBots won't allow those. Um, so I'm going to be wrong that someone's going to come up with a fantastic idea for a multibot and then we're all going to have to figure out how to beat it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that next that next great idea is always around the corner. And, and actually I had an offshoot question from the airborne one because a lot of the airborne uh, robots we do see tend to employ flame weapons. Um, and what are your thoughts on those? Because obviously for the television show, they look spectacular. And I was, was second guessing. I'm like, what's that actually going to do? But when you start getting into the idea of, you know, that fire can get in there and start destroying electrical components from the inside out, you know, if you get lucky, they can wreak a lot of havoc really quickly. Uh, I've seen a lot of robots that shoot flames, and I've never seen that weapon do any damage to another robot. Except at the last BattleBots when complete control grabbed Chaos Core and held them there, and they had some amazing torch that was actually doing damage. That was the first time that I saw a flame floor be effective. Yeah, because that was one where it can actually pick up the robot, immobilize it, and then shoot fire at it. So then right. it can actually get that sustained heat and that sustained flame in there to, to really start doing some, some significant damage. Yeah. I didn't have time to talk to them about it, but there was something amazing going on with their torch too. It was just really hot. Yeah. Um, but I've never been afraid of a flamethrower. The worst I've had is paint job gets ruined. But yeah. they look cool though. 
It looks really good. Yeah. It looks good. And, and they're lightweight. Yeah. It doesn't take much to put one on there. And uh, Solarin in our chat was also uh, commenting that they should have a separate league for uh, for airborne robots. Um, we do. Or they, there is. There's Game of Drones. Um, it is very quadcopter-focused uh, combat, but it is a, a quadcopter based um or, or quadcopter multi-rotor uh based uh, combat league and the only rule there is there aren't any rules so they're employing all kinds of different strategies of however you can take your opponent out i mean people use nets they use uh streamers or other dangling things because it's hard enough to even just get uh airborne you know multi-rotor aircraft to collide uh and interact with each other uh, it's actually quite a bit harder than you would think um so right there's almost no rules there, so uh, any <laughs> idea that you have there, um, try it out, and uh, you can find that at, at Maker Fairs and, and things like that, and uh, check it out. I believe it's just GameOfDrones.com released. If you fire that into a Google window, you will uh, you will find it. Um, and uh, so before we uh, we're kind of getting towards the end here, but uh, you reminded me earlier to make sure to ask you about Seven Eleven and animation. <laughs> You, you promised a good story there, and I'm eager to hear it. All right. So in 1988, I'm working in a Mexican restaurant during the day and working on my animated film at night. And the way my film is being made is I take a tub of petroleum jelly and I squirt in acrylic paint. So when I mix it up, the jelly takes on the color of the paint, but it doesn't dry out. And the way I made this movie was I would finger paint on big pieces of glass and shoot a frame and then move the colored goop around. And inevitably every night at around 3 a.m. I would run out of petroleum jelly. <laughs> so I would walk down University Avenue in Palo Alto to the nearest 7-Eleven and buy all the petroleum jelly they had. At three in the morning. <laughs> at three in the morning. <laughs> and these guys, who were working there got to know me as the guy who came in at three in the morning to buy all the petroleum jelly they had, but they were never brave enough to ask me why. And it just gave me such a feeling of accomplishment that every night I could go to the Seven Eleven and freak out those guys wondering who's this creep who's buying all my petroleum jelly. So that's, that's my petroleum jelly. Story. It's like the story of, you know, you're, you're, you're doing your shopping. You uh, are buying a plunger, an ax, three rolls of duct tape, and a box of condoms. And what's weird about this? There's, this is perfectly normal. <laughs> right. I knew my life was going well when I had that yeah. experience. So these are, these are good things to, uh, good weird intersections to have in your life. Um, so well, do we have time to talk about one more project? Absolutely. Okay. Could you go to the website that shows the painting machine? Yes. Yes. That's, um, thank you for reminding me because in all this other topics of cool stuff, uh, I almost missed that. Um, so this is my current favorite project. Um, when I was doing graphic design, I worked with a lot of very talented digital illustrators who do beautiful things in Photoshop. And uh, when they were done, we could look at them on the web or they could get them printed on a, a high-resolution dot matrix printer. But I always thought it would be really cool if they could print them out using paint because um, paint has a certain texture and vibrancy that you just don't get on a printer. So I've been working on this machine that makes paintings. Um, right, and we're just taking a look at the, the video here now. Um, it looks like it does do in the first layer, like, ink pass. Uh, or actually, no, it looks like it is actually um, laying out at paint there. And is it, that's actual, like, uh, acrylic paint that it's, it's painting with? 
Yeah, so uh, it currently has 144 colors. They, they come in these... Uh, in these tubes and a digital uh, uh, pressurized air system pushes them so it comes out of the needle here and it lays down a bead or a dot of paint. Um, I'm not hearing myself. Are you hearing me? Yeah. Okay. I am, yeah. Uh, and is it working expressly with um, whatever colors you load into it? Doesn't it do any paint mixing or anything like that? No. So I've written a, uh, I helped and got, wrote a Photoshop plugin that takes the Photoshop image and dithers it using the colors that I have available in my tubes, my barrels. Um, so, uh, be right back. Okay. Yeah, and in the meantime, we're just taking a look at some of the paintings here, and you can see different levels of, of like, um, posterizing the color to get more and less detail, depending on... Uh, on the design and the desired output. And actually, and if we we're going to go back to Hal here, and that was the painting that we were just looking at on the, on the website. Right. So this is a test painting that I've been, I've done three versions of it. And um, this is the last version that just came off the machine. It's starting to look pretty good. Oh, it's beautiful. Um, so I don't know if you can see there, but you got a, a little angel and a parrot, a sunflower and a fish and, and flesh tones, which are very difficult to do, and the eyes look good. So it's almost at the point where um, I'm going to start asking digital artists to start using it and uh, see what they can do. Because the, the image I just showed you is just for testing certain types of images. But I think if I get it in the hands of a real talented uh, digital artist, you can do some really beautiful stuff. Yeah. I've always been impressed with um, intersections of technology and art uh, a friend of mine i he has a painting process where he creates these really high contrast um images and he starts them off with photography and some graphic design and lays it out in a like two color image um that then he takes and projects it onto a large canvas um you know mm -hmm. his design work and then and then he paints that um, yeah. so it's yeah. the final result is that it is still a painting um but it has this very digital um, you know, graphic design informed work. Um, but it, you know, the final, the final product is still, still paint on canvas. And the reason I wanted to make sure I, I showed, had time to show that was because it gets back to a theme that we talked about before that, uh, I'm passionate about now, which is I had heard about this thing called Arduino, uh, and I thought that'd be a cool thing to know. And I was able to just go online, buy one for 30 bucks. It's open source, figure out how to program it in a couple of days. And the whole painting machine is running on Arduino. Yeah. Uh, Arduino, Arduino is wonderful. It's the reason why I learned to love programming again. And uh, I guess I could also assume that it's the reason why I, I got introduced into making Um I had yeah. a couple of ideas I wanted wanted to try out, um, things I wanted to own and and couldn't afford to buy, but I figured pretty sure I could figure out how to make it on my own. And uh, my start into that was Arduino, and I I still can't say enough nice things about that board. Yeah, and at the risk of sounding too much like an old fart, I mean, I hope you understand how amazing it is that we can do that now. I mean, ten years. 20 years ago, there's no way I could have made that machine myself. 
Right. No way. Yeah, and, and that, I think that's the other part of it. Like I was saying earlier, I still only have the vaguest of understanding of electronic engineering, um, but I'm able to to grapple with that stuff and manipulate it using the language that I do know, which is through code, uh, and things make sense there. Um, you know, so it allows you to tackle it allows you to tackle a problem in a number of different ways, which I think is one of the most incredible things about it. Yeah. Very exciting. Yeah. Very exciting. Um, Very cool. Well, Hal, I cannot thank you enough for, for joining us today on Meet the Maker. It's um, been really incredible having you here and, and being able to uh, uh, chat with you about your robots, your design, your engineering, and all the other incredible stuff. Where can people find out more about you and what you're up to? Well, the website that I think you've been showing, because I can't see it, is just HalRucker.com. That's, that's the one. H-A-L-R-U-C-K-E-R.com. Uh, I was up late last night making it current, so all my latest stuff is up there. Uh, feel free to contact me if you have any questions about anything. Uh, if you want advice about how to build beautiful robots that don't win trophies, give me a call. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, and uh, try and tap into the just because we talked about it so much, try and tap into this robot building community that goes to robo games and battle bots and other events. They're a really great group of people. Um, really smart, very competitive, very innovative. Yeah, for sure. Um, if uh, uh, other things we have going on, because uh, there's a whole lot more to, uh, to make other than uh, this Twitch channel uh, I've got here. This is our digital fabrication issue. Uh, this is the magazine that we do every single year. Uh, this is our big 3D printer review. Only uh, as of last year, we stopped just talking about 3D printers. We also started talking about CNC machines, laser cutters, vinyl cutters, and a couple of other uh, more uh, hybrid machines, uh, like uh, 3D printers that you can also put like a laser on, and it becomes a laser cutter and engraver. Um, you can check that out. This will be on newsstand soon. If you're a subscriber, you probably already have this. Um, and of course we have a, I, I promised this last week, uh, I'm still working on, it's almost ready. The video about this, uh, our, our best overall printer, which is the Prusa i3 Mark II. It's a fantastic printer that uh, we've had in the office here for a couple of weeks now. And, uh, Lovely prints and an incredible price of just $900. Um, and uh, also Maker Faire. Um, uh, we have a number of Maker Fairs coming up this weekend. Um, we have uh, uh, Maker Faire Bilbao in Spain. Um, that is uh, November 18th and 19th, so Saturday and Sunday. And if you're on the East Coast in New York, we have Rochester Mini Maker Faire um, in uh, Rochester. And that's uh, on Sunday uh, November 19th and Rogue Valley Mini Maker Fair in Oregon near Ashland uh, that is also on Sunday November 19th um, but uh, once again I want to thank Hal uh, Hal Rucker for stopping by and chatting with us today and for the awesome er, conversation and great stories about robot combat season 3 season 3 find out. how do we make that happen how do we how do we yell at people until BattleBot season 3 happens sure there's some hashtags for it yeah uh and if not if that doesn't happen but you are in the bay area make sure to check out robo games that uh competition is really really fantastic and there's a lot more there than just um well there's you get to right. see all the different uh combat classes not just the big heavyweights but also you get to see lots of other robot uh competition like the uh, robot 
judo match and other right there's art robots there's robots that put out fires there's robots that play, play hockey robots that play soccer i'm, I'm forgetting a whole bunch because i'm always fixing my robot for combat but there's a I mean, lot going on even if you were there just to see the robot competition i don't think you could even see all of it there's a ton going on there um yeah that that competition is a yeah. lot of fun but anyhow uh yeah. Hal, thanks again for joining us, and uh, we will You're be welcome. seeing you guys uh, right here live on Twitch um, very, very soon. Thank you very much for watching, and we'll see you soon. Bye-bye. <laughs>